0: Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the Psalms. You can turn with me to Psalm 4. As we continue going through the Psalms in order. A just God for an unjust time. We'll read the entire Psalm, begin reading at verse 1, Psalm number 4. To the chief musician with strained instruments, a Psalm of David. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness or seek falsehood? la. But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. The Lord will hear when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate within your heart, on your bed, and be still. la. Offer the sacrifice of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. You've put gladness in my heart, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. I will both lie down in peace and sleep. For you alone, O oh Lord, make me dwell in safety. Amen. Well, let us pray. Thank you, O oh God, our righteousness, that you are our shield and defender. And that you're the one who gives us gladness. You're the one who gives us peace. You're the one who gives us rest. And we're thankful, O oh God, for that blessed rest that we have in Christ the Lord, for all that He has done for us. And so often, O oh God, we are weary. So often, O oh God, we are weighed down by the work we have to engage in. We're weighed down by the remaining corruption that we have. But we ask, O oh God, tonight, that we would turn our eyes upon Christ. Help us not to be angry. Help us not to be in despair. But help us to put our faith and trust in you, O oh God, even in the times where there is injustice and enigma that we have to deal with, even uh, dealing with the problems concerning our own sins. So we ask, O oh God, you'd be with us tonight by your spirit, that you'd strengthen your people. Give us comfort and encouragement, we pray. Help us to know your love for us in Christ and what he has done for us. And we pray that you'd be glorified in all things. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, as we saw so often in the book Ecclesiastes, there is much injustice in the world in which we live. Man is desperately wicked. Man is terrible. Man is depraved. And unfortunately, man engages in wickedness against other men. And sometimes men ridicule other men for no reason at all. Maybe there is a reason, but there's no substance to the claim that one might have against Another. There's injustice when people are ridiculed falsely, when people are defamed, when someone bears false witness against their neighbor. And especially we see this injustice when it comes against the Lord and his anointed. So, one of the reasons the world in which we live in is unsafe is because man engages in wickedness and injustice. And certainly we did see that in Ecclesiastes. We saw how there were tyrants. And even in Ecclesiastes 4, we saw how there was no comfort for the oppressed. Their tears are many, but there is no comforter for them. Well, this is thankfully where Psalm 4 helps us. David cries out to God in a time of injustice. And thankfully, his song is a prayer that we can pray and sing as well. ought to be a comfort to God's people as we consider what David says in his time of injustice against him and how it can encourage us. Now, remember the Psalms as a whole is a book of praise for God's people. There are different types. Tonight we're gonna see it's probably also a lament, but perhaps moves again to confidence, moves again to praise. Usually there's that movement in most of the Psalms. There's complaining, there's concern, there's a situation. And the Psalmist then moves from that lament to uh, to confidence or to praise, and tonight we're going to see his confidence in his God. And as I like to point out, the book of the Psalter is really not just a bunch of psalms put together, but there's a flow to it. Psalms 1 and 2 give us the purpose and the message of the Psalter, and then the rest of the psalms are separated by five books. And obviously Psalm 4 is in book number 1, which Godfrey calls the king's confidence in the Lord. That is, the king has confidence, but in book one, there's a lot of struggles of faith. There's a lot of concerns, personal trials that the king goes through. So he has confidence, but there's questions about that confidence. And so that's what we see tonight in Psalm 4. And Perhaps Psalm 4 is the evening psalm, and Psalm 3 we saw last week was the morning psalm. So tonight is the evening psalm. And so the problem in this psalm is the problem of injustice. Humanly speaking, many innocent people have accusations brought against them. Many innocent people are ridiculed against for some unjustified reason. It can be an unjust punishment or it can be through defaming, which I think certainly is in view tonight. And so in a time of injustice, thankfully, there is a God we can call upon. A God who hears us and a God who helps us in an unjust situation. So that's what David uh, David wants us to see in Psalm 4. We see in this Psalm, David requests mercy and safety from the righteous God in a time of unrighteousness. So righteous God, he clings to in a time of injustice. And thankfully, he's going to talk to three different people in this Psalm. And every time he talks to those three sets of people, He then reminds himself of who his God is. And so we'll structure this psalm with those three sets of people. So let's first, well, we'll first see how the Lord answers the shameful, verses 1 through 3. Secondly, we'll see how the Lord answers the hothead in verses 4 and 5. And then lastly, we'll see how the Lord answers the discouraged in verses 6 through 8. So how the Lord answers the shameful, how the Lord answers the hothead, And lastly, how the Lord answers the discouraged. So let's first look at how the Lord answers the shameful in verses 1 through 3. And notice in verse 1, we see David's plea to the God who hears. Or perhaps we could say, as Kidner says, David's well-founded prayer. Now notice there is no historical setting here. We have that superscript to the chief musician with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. It was meant to be uh, for worship for the whole people of God, even though it's David's plight. It is something that the people of God can sing because the people of God go through similar types of situations. But unlike Psalm 3, there is no historical setting. Psalm 3, we saw how it was the situation when David fled his son Absalom. Now, perhaps that is in view because the Psalms could, uh, could perhaps be connected. But we don't necessarily know for sure. Perhaps it's David fleeing Saul. Could be another situation. But we can glean the overarching problem from what he how he calls to God and also the men he addresses in verse 2. And so the idea of injustice is in view. Because notice what he says in verse 1. Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. That seems to indicate the problem here for us. And how does it indicate that in this cry? Well, he's calling to the God of righteousness. He's calling to the God of uprightness. He's calling to the God who has made him upright and made him righteous. And the reason he calls upon the one who is righteous is because he knows the one who is righteous is going to vindicate him against unrighteousness. The one who is righteous is going to vindicate him against injustice. David has someone he can call upon in an unjust and unrighteous situation. And I think he's appealing to the to who his God is, the God of righteousness, but also the mercy bestowed upon him by his God. He is the God of my righteousness. In Psalm 143, David says there is no one righteous, but in Psalm 143, he appeals to the righteousness of God. So even in the Old Testament, the people understood where their righteousness came from. It was not because of them, but it was because of God who is righteous and God who bestows righteousness upon his people. This righteous God will vindicate those who are his in a time of unrighteousness. So in his prayer, in his distress... When he calls upon his God, he's calling upon God based upon who he is and what he has done for David. And then notice he also looks to past relief. Verse 1, you have relieved me in my distress. The language is the idea of enlargement so much so that as David was enlarged, the distress dissipated. The distress became Limited, And so what he's highlighting is, God, you've relieved me in other times, relieve me in this time. David does this as he's going to battle Goliath, doesn't he? He says, God helped me when I fought a bear. God helped me when I fought a lion. God is going to help me when I fight this giant and cut his head off. God is going to be with me when I do this. That's important for us, dear brethren, to understand. We must look back at the deliverances that God gives to us in our daily life. And it might help us and encourage us as we press on in the future. Spurgeon says, it is not to be imagined that he who has helped us in six troubles will leave us in the seventh. So he calls to the God of his righteousness. He reminds himself and reminds God, you relieved me in my distress. And now, based upon who you are, based upon what you've done for me, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. He's clinging to the God of promise. He's clinging to the God of his righteousness in a time. He's using who God is and what God has done to help him as he gives this petition unto his God. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer, O my Lord. And again, this is interesting because when you consider the flow of the Psalter, Psalm 2 has a lot of triumph, doesn't it? The Lord laughs And all those who are set themselves against the Lord and his anointing, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish along the way. And then Psalm three comes and we have this situation with Absalom and how David has to flee his son Absalom. Where does David look to in that time? The promises of God and similar here, when David is in a time of, uh, of, of difficulty, a time when injustice is poured out against him, where does he go to? He goes to his God and he's going to cling to the promises that God had bestowed upon him. He's highlighting or David's leaning to the same God who made his same promise to David. So David has has this well-founded prayer. He he has this plea to the God who hears. But then notice in verses 2 and 3, David challenges the men who shame him. And notice he has the words for the sons of men. Again, now he's speaking to three groups of people uh, that go from verses two through six. Notice in verse two, we see the men who shame. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? Sons of men here probably refers to some sort of nobility, perhaps some sort of men who are in high places. And certainly Absalom fits that bill. Absalom and all his cronies fit that bill. They were certainly men in high places. And the implication is it was people in Israel. It wasn't just, it wasn't some heathen nation or heathen nobility, but perhaps could be those who are in Israel, those who were supposed to be the people of God, those who are supposed to appreciate the Lord and his anointed. But that's the enigma, isn't it? (laughs) The people of Israel are challenging the Lord and his anointed. And so he's going to appeal here perhaps to their so-called goodwill, but he knows ultimately his vindication doesn't come from their goodness, but comes from somewhere else. And so he questions them. How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you defame? How long will you trample on God's promises? And again, certainly Absalom would be in view. God set up David and his throne. God said, David and his kingship and Absalom in his lust for power with his giant hair. He used that as a way to, uh, uh, he was certainly uh, Absalom went against the Lord and his anointed. How long will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? How long will you pursue emptiness and lies? That's what they were doing. Fullness comes with God. Fullness comes with the Lord and his anointed. If one goes against God, it only leads to emptiness and falsehood. And so these men pursue emptiness and lies at the expense of what is true concerning the king. So he talks to these ones, he's speaking to them, and then notice how it provides comfort to David as he's talking to them. That kind of happens sometimes when you pray, doesn't it? When you go to your God in prayer, you bring your petition, you bring your concern before him. And as you're praying it back, your concern, you realize, wow, I I need to hear that as I'm talking through this. Well, that's sort of how it's happening for David here. As he's teaching these men, he's being reminded of God's promise. Notice what he says. But know, O you sons of men, that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. That is, he's clinging to the promise, perhaps given to David. Those who are godly are called the hesed ones. Hesed is used in scripture to refer usually to God and his faithfulness. And here it's used to refer to the ones whom God has chosen and set his love upon. So perhaps could read the godly, but certainly it says those whom God set apart for himself, who are the hesed ones, the chosen ones God has distinguished, And certainly it does refer to David. He set apart David, not Absalom. David is his king. David is who he chose. David is the king God set apart. It's also used in Exodus 8, 9, and 11 to distinguish Israel from Egypt. So notice what's happening here. That even amongst old covenant Israel, God is separating his so-called chosen race. God is electing those out, uh, uh, those in Israel to be part of true Israel, even under the old covenant. God did not choose Absalom, but God has chosen David. Know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. And then notice, thankfully, verse 3. The Lord will hear when I call to him. That is, the Lord hears his chosen ones. And again, even in Israel, there are hesed ones. Not all Israel is Israel here. But God answers those who are his, doesn't he? That's the comfort. That's the encouragement. And there's going to be a lot of pairs going on in this psalm. But notice he cried out in verse 1, have mercy on me and hear my prayer. Well, as he's challenging these shameful ones He reminds himself of God's goodness. God has set apart for himself. I am the one set apart for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. I might always feel like God will hear me, but I can call upon him and my God will hear me. So he's moving along in this psalm. He's got a concern, but as he speaks to others, he's being reminded of God's care. And so thankfully, brethren, we can be reminded of that as well the just god for those whom he loves. And certainly we can bring in that blessed doctrine of justification by faith, right? How we are not guilty in the sight of God, it's a legal term, how we are pardoned for our sin and how we have a righteousness that is not our own. This is all Romans, all Galatians, highlighting that our righteousness comes not based upon us but based upon Christ. This is Philippians 3, and a righteousness is not my own, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith. How are we right before God legally? How are we right before the judge who does nothing wrong? It's only in Jesus Christ. We don't just need his dying, dear brethren, but we need his living and living the law in its perfection to be that perfect sacrifice for us. His dying on the cross is what we call his passive obedience. His living is what we call his active obedience. And we need both. We need a righteousness that is not our own. He freely pardons and makes us righteous. And because of this, we have Communion with Him. Because of this, we can boldly approach Him. And because of this, in this world, when someone brings an unjust claim against the people of God, we have a God that we can trust who will vindicate His people. There are many brethren around the world who are in chains unjustly. There are many of God's people who suffer unjustly, but there is a God we can cling to, the God of our righteousness. Davis says that we may not be covenant kings, but if we are uncondemned, chosen, prayed for, and loved, it doesn't sound too second class. If Yahweh has said to us, don't be afraid, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by by name, you are mine. Why should we listen to the blabberings of our enemies, or even the accusations of an overly sensitive conscience? Brethren, the Lord God answers the shameful, and as He answers the shameful, He reminds us that He loves those who are His. So that's how the Lord answers the shameful. Let's then look secondly at how the Lord answers the hothead. Notice David's advice for the angry or sorry, David's advice for the angry in verse four: "Be angry and do not sin. Perhaps those addressed here are some of David's closest friends. And they are angry at the situation as well. They can't stand the injustice done against the Lord and his anointed. Now notice, be angry. That is, the anger may be legitimate. That is, Absalom should not be trying to take the throne. That is unjust. And so their anger actually may be fine. It actually may be right. But the problem is, most of the time when we have anger, it usually degenerates into sin so he says be angry and do not sin don't let your anger degenerate into sin don't let your anger fester into sin and notice his advice in the situation just chill just relax just step back and go to bed is what he says verse four be angry and do not sin meditate within your heart on your bed and be still Anger may be a legitimate response but it's best not to sin with this anger it's best to stop and consider that is the advice that god gives that is the 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 the, the wisdom god gives in an angry situation go cool off i remember reading uh, years ago about you know how you um rear your child And certainly one of the things this author suggested was go put your kid away for three minutes and come back after and deal with it. That's pretty good advice, isn't it? Calm the situation, let it cool down, then go deal with it. Now, that's not always in every situation, but the advice I think is still good. When we're angry, we just need time to cool down because most of the time when we're angry, we're going to say things we regret Most of the time when we're angry, we're going to do things we regret. And David doesn't want his friend to go shoot Absalom in the head with a bow and arrow. That would not be the thing to do at this time. Now we know what Joab does. He goes and guts him. And Joab is an example of what one should not do. But what one should do in a time of of anger, a time of injustice, meditate within your heart, on your bed, think about it, and be still. So before you hurt somebody, just chill. That's the, that's the advice that God gives. That's in the word of God for what we do with our anger. But then notice also David's remedy for anger in verse five. Basically, what he's saying here is shut up and worship is exactly what he's saying. Or shut up and go pray is what he's saying. Keep it to yourself. Keep it in your mouth. Keep bite your tongue and go offer worship to God. Verse five. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. Now, certainly under the Old Covenant, they had their specific way of worship. But even under the Old Covenant, especially in the Psalter, we do see the worship that God accepts, do we not? That's why we sang Psalm 51. Certainly they would have offered bulls and goats, but the sacrifices notice of righteousness he called upon the god of my righteousness and the one who are righteous before god offer sacrifices to their god namely a contrite heart and a broken spirit this is what david says in psalm 51:17 the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart these o oh god you will not despise why does he say that because typically when we're angry It's usually because we don't like the situation we are in, or we don't like the fact that God has led us down that path. When we're angry, we don't like the situation and circumstance we are in, so we lash out in that situation. That's why he says, a broken and contrite heart. That's why he says, these, O God, you will not despise. Then he goes on to talk about uh, doing good and coming before God and offering burnt offerings, especially under the Old Covenant. But it starts with a broken and contrite heart. And one who's been changed and saved by God, thankfully, has access to this God. Gill says, moreover, righteousness with the Jews signifies alms, beneficence, showing mercy, And acts of liberality are sacrifices with which God is well-pleased and which are preferred by him to the sacrifices of the ceremonial law. The sacrifices also of a broken heart and a contrite spirit are such as God esteems of. He looks at those that have them and dwells with them. When one is angry, usually they're not the most contrite, are they? (laughs) When one is angry, usually they're not the most broken, are they? What's he saying? Bring your prayer to God. Bring your anger to the Lord. Be angry. Do not sin and go offer sacrifice of righteousness and notice. Put your trust in the Lord. Again, when we're angry, we don't like the situation we are in. We must go and put our trust in the Lord. He is the one over all things. He is the one who has decreed all things. He is the one who is bringing all things to pass. And it was certainly when it came to Absalom, it's certainly part of David's punishment for his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah. But also even with Psalm 3, David still has the God he can call upon in that situation. And David still understands he can go to this God and this God will hear him. He can still offer sacrifices to this God and he can trust in him in this Situation. And thankfully, brethren, we have a trustworthy God for the anger we experience. Paul actually alludes to this psalm in Ephesians 4. And kudos to you if you had Ephesians 4 in your mind. Ephesians 4:26. When he talks about how we're the new man in Christ, how we have the spirit of the new man, how we have our minds renewed how we are in the image of God in righteousness and holiness. Therefore, because of what we are going on, what we talked about with Colossians, how we are in him complete in him. Therefore, because of who we are, how then do we live? Put away lying. What's the implication? The people of God still lie. Don't do that. Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Verbatim from Psalm 4 verse uh, verse 4. And notice, do not let the sun go down on your wrath. Again, don't be rash or leave room for the devil. Deal with it. Take a chill pill for a bit, go cool off, and then go deal with your problems. Go deal with the conflict. Go deal with the situation. You want to know why? It's just going to fester if you don't just going to build if you don't. That's what he is suggesting here for us. We must deal with it in a proper manner. Lashing out when we're angry is not good. Throwing things when we're angry is not good. Hopefully, I'm sure people do. I'm sure people do that. People definitely throw things, but we shouldn't do that. But just calm down, take a deep breath, and walk away. Bruce says there's no doubt a proper place for righteous indignation, but there is a subtle temptation to regard my anger as righteous indignation. Other people's anger is sheer bad temper. Do you do that? Your anger is right, but everybody else's is unrighteous. Does it happen in marriages a lot? I'm right. You're wrong. I mean, I'm sure that happens a ton of the time. Well, maybe we need to be more humble and contrite and brokenhearted than... We sometimes realize here to suggest that anger can be prevented from degenerating into sin. Thankfully, brethren, in a time of anger, a time of injustice, we have a God we can cling to, to help us not grow and seethe in our anger. And thankfully, if we put our trust in God, we can have peace uh, in this world. So thankfully we can put our trust in a God who answers the hothead. Let's then look thoroughly and finally at how the Lord answers the discouraged, verses 6 through 8. These people are on the other side of the spectrum. These people are probably still David's friends, but they there's nothing we can do. Verse 6, there are many who say, who will show us any good? You got Tigger on one end, you got Eeyore on the other end, right? And not that Tigger is angry, but Tigger just kind of just jumps into things without thinking. And then you got Eeyore who's just a, grout, a grump we just a sad guy all the time, just glass half full. It's not even a little bit full for Eeyore. But some people are like that. There are many who say, who will show us any good? Who will that be? And so what does David then say? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. For the people that feel like nothing can be done, the prayer that David prays, comes from number six again kudos to you if you had number six in the background lord lift up the light of your countenance upon us your people this is the ironic blessing from number six and number six we see how the priests were to bless the people of god In number six, verses 22 through 27, he says, uh, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his son, saying, This is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is a benediction, a calling upon blessing upon the people in the language of face." carries the idea of a, a, a favor directed toward the people, not turning away, but looking toward the people, not turning away in shame, but looking upon them with favor. Certainly the light aspect highlights a shining face. One who's smiling is usually shining. That's usually what we think of them. One who's grumpy is, I don't know, pouting. What do they call the dark face? I don't know. But, but we highlight here God's favor, his shining face. Lift up the light of your countenance, your favorable presence, O God. Lift up these people who are in despair. Let them know the sun that shines. Let them know the sun of righteousness, that there's healing in his wings. May we know who you are, O God, and be reminded of this. And with that ironic blessing, that priestly blessing, usually the priests, what they did is they brought about reconciliation, assurance, and communion. And so what's he praying for here? What's he saying here in uh, Psalm number four? What he's saying is that may these people who are in despair know the reconciliation they have. May they have assurance and may they know the communion that they have with you. May they know your fullness. That's the God who lifts up. The God who helps those who say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance. Davis says, apparently David actually believes that benediction. He took that benediction from number six and he makes it a prayer, doesn't he? For him, it is not a mere ditty at the end of worship. Not a bunch of religious frosting or a snazzy way of saying the end. Interesting, isn't it? That sometimes what you need for the next step is right there in the worship service. If nothing more, this verse shows us the lively concern we ought to have for those among us who are overwhelmed. Brethren, do we ever treat the benedictions that way? I think sometimes I must confess I do that. It is that snazzy ending to the service. It's that frosting. But it's also a promise that God gives, isn't it? May peace be with you. May the grace of God be with you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Even at the end of the service, we can be reminded of God's promises to us as we go out into the world. And certainly David understood that in a real situation Lord, lift up the light of your countenance. And then in verses seven and eight, we see well-founded peace as Kidner says. So he gives his prayer in verse one. We see the answer to that prayer in verses seven and eight. And we see who he speaks to in verses six uh, two through six. But notice in verses seven and eight, David's gladness and peace in the Lord. Notice he says, you have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased notice who it is who gives him gladness and notice where his gladness lies yahweh gives it and it's in yahweh it's as david says independent of the circumstances there are many circumstances dear brethren that do not bring us joy but that doesn't mean we can't have joy in our god and that's what david is indicating here for us you O god Put gladness in my heart. You showed me the light of your countenance, more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. Not that having grain and wine is not a good thing. God, or Paul says in Acts 14 that he filled the hearts of the heathen with gladness and fruitful seasons. He gave them blessing. He gave them temporal benefits. But where do the people of God find their fullness? Where do the people of God find their ultimate gladness? Is it not in God? Is it not in Christ or should it not be in Christ? That's where David finds it in this time of great injustice. You have put gladness in my heart. And notice he puts it there. Notice where again, in the heart to go with that angry aspect. Be angry, do not sin, meditate within your heart. Deal with it, ponder what's going on. But God puts the gladness in one's heart. We can go from anger to joy because we know where our joy comes from. As we turn our eyes upon God, right? In our anger, who do we go to? God. And as we turn our eyes upon our God, hopefully he gives us the gladness of our heart in him more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. And then notice the peace he's given in verse 8. The Lord who answers... I will both lie down in peace and sleep. We saw how he slept in Psalm 3, 5. I lay down and slept. I awoke for the Lord sustained me. And today in verse 8, I will both lie down in peace and I will sleep. Maybe he's reminded of the morning. So that as he comes to bed in the evening, despite the injustice, despite the problems, he's not going to let it fester all night because he knows who his God is. And as he knows who his God is, his God is going to give him peace in the night as he sleeps. Peace and safety, O God. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. We can sleep without fear. And we don't need to worry about the vain janglings of our enemies, do we? We don't need to worry about all the injustices. We don't need to worry about what people say. Ecclesiastes says, don't don't take anything to heart. The reason he says that there is because you probably do the same thing to others, but the point here is we have our God who we can cling to. Don't take anything to heart, dear brethren, because you have the God of your righteousness who is with you, and you can dwell in peace and safety. You alone, O Lord, you make me to dwell in safety. And thankfully, dear brethren, we have a safe God and an uplifting God, when we are discouraged and again notice how everything David said to these three groups of people was eventually for him he said to the, the shameful how long will you do this but no the lord has set apart for himself him who is godly the lord will hear and how he deals with the hothead put your trust in the lord that's for david as well and then also in verse 6 who will show us any good the lord lift up his countenance What these people needed is what David needed as well. As he was reminding these people of their situation, he was reminded of his God and what God has done for him. And brethren, sometimes we can be discouraged over our own circumstances or the circumstances of the world. And we mustn't forget the light of God's countenance and the joy that we have in him. Brethren, does he not do good for us And does he not delight to give us good blessings in this world? And does he not delight to do this temporally, but even more so spiritually in the Lord Jesus Christ? Who we are in him, we are righteous in him, we are saved in him. And if Jesus is our righteousness, what can man do to us? And if we believed on Christ, if we've looked to him, let us close with Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. What shall we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is God who died and furthermore is also risen. Who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our gracious heavenly father, thank you. O God, that you are the God of our righteousness. And thank you. O God. In times of ridicule and times of shame that come upon your people, we can put our faith and trust in you that you are the God who has set us apart. You have chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. You have sent forth your son born of a woman to die on behalf of his people and you've poured out your spirit to apply those benefits in our hearts and lives thank you for that you've given us regeneration that you effectually called us uh that you've given us all the benefits that are found in christ justification sanctification adoption uh perseverance and even the promise of glorification as well thank you for this O god that we have this in you and thank you for the reminders again of who we are in christ the lord that we have Died with him, we've been buried with him, and we are raised with him, and we are seated with him even now. May this give us comfort to know, O God, that you're the God who hears us. And even in times of great trial and distress, O God, even things that make our blood boil, help us to be angry and not sin. Help us to meditate on the situation, help us to be still, and help us, O God, to come and worship. Help us to pray, help us to offer our petitions unto you, help us to bring it before you. And may we put our trust in you, O God, for you are our God. And thank you, O God, for the times that we are discouraged and the times we are downcast. Uh, May we hope in you, O God. May we put our trust in you. Why should our souls be cast down, O God? Hope in him who saved us. So may we hope in you, O God. May we put our faith in you, O God, that we have safety in you that you dwell with us, that you are near to us, that we have peace with God through Christ our Lord. So may this give us comfort and strength tonight, O God, as we go out into the world. And we pray, O God, that you would bless us and keep us and make your face shine upon us. So be with us now by your spirit, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen.